0: Paul says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone. But on the tablets of flesh, that is, on the heart. And we have such trust trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think as anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who has also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And, Father, we... Just humbly ask as we continue now in our worship, Lord, as we've sang and prayed and fellowshiped and done other things, we ask that you'd help us to continue now in our worship of you as always by just availing our hearts and our minds, our soul, and our spirit to the truth and the authority of your word. Lord, you know what each one of us needs this morning to be attentive and to hear the voice of your spirit. So as always, we ask that you would speak through what you have already spoken by your spirit in the word of God, prepare us. And we ask now for the ministry of your spirit to speak things to our heart through this portion of the word of God. And we ask these things expectantly together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, how can you tell if something is truly, may I say, a work of the Lord and being directed by the Spirit of God. I think there is a definite difference between just performing what we might say good works in society and actually serving in the power of the Holy Spirit. The former, just doing good works in society, may bring some temporary help and comfort to people to some degree, but it doesn't ultimately solve long-term problems. Whereas a work of the Spirit of God produces changed lives. And that's because of the life-changing power of God's Spirit being able to work inside of human hearts. And that's really as we're going to see what our text is revealing to us this morning. Showing us what a work of the Lord work looks like and how God works by his Spirit inwardly in the lives of people. Remember the backdrop from our study last time. Paul just began describing his ministry work, and he started talking about how he and his servant team, as well as us, as well as Christians, that we are like spreading the fragrant aroma of Christ and what Christ is like all around us in the world. And that as representatives of Jesus, that to a degree, we're like the fragrance of Christ, stimulating people's interest in the Lord. And whether that's living out our Christian life or declaring the word of God, that people might come to know God's will, helping people to have a relationship with the Lord. Paul had just said in the last verse of chapter two, as he was mentioning this reality, he left off declaring in chapter two, verse 17, for we are not, he says, as so many. And again, I say it's tragic that he had to say many. I wish he said so few. We are not as so many, he says, peddling like a huckster in a market peddling the word of God. But as of sincerity and as from God, we speak, he says, in the sight of God in Christ. So Paul was assuring those that he was writing to there in Corinth that he was not utilizing the word of God and just trying to operate really like a religious successful business person. And kind of using the services of church life and spiritual things and using the Word of God like religious merchandise to just kind of attract needy customers and conduct a good and successful and prosperous business in the things that were spiritual. But instead, with a sincere heart, He was genuinely trying to do what God had asked of him and of his team of servants as they went around ministering to people to serve as a representative of the Lord Jesus to help people. And Paul indicates here in that last verse of chapter two how he spoke, not desiring the approval of people that were listening to him like an audience hoping that they'd come back for the show next week, but instead that Paul genuinely cared about speaking properly, he says, in the sight of God. In other words, his concern was God Are you okay with what we just said? Is this earned your approval? Are you pleased with what we communicated? That was his genuine heart. And of course, he was alluding to the fact that his heart was sincere and that he genuinely was trying to help people under the leading of the spirit and speak God's word. Now, sadly, because there were corrupt people, Paul mentions them in verse two, who were operating under the banner of the work of the Lord, As well as, though Paul was a legitimate minister of the gospel, he had enemies who were enemies of the true work of the Lord, and therefore they sought to criticize and cause, in a sense, people to dislike and not want to interact with Paul. Paul had to deal with this issue of people questioning his ministry and questioning the work of the Lord. And so in light of those things, he needed to share some truths to kind of assure and validate the hearts of the people that he was trying to continue to minister to. And in so doing, in our verses this morning, we glean some helpful truths about the work of the Lord, as Paul is kind of trying to address this to some degree. If you look with me again, back in the beginning of chapter three, verse one, as we pick up, Paul, in light of these things, says, do we begin again, he says, to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation. The idea is letters of recommendation he's talking about to you or letters of commendation or recommendation from you. So Paul's asking the church there in Corinth, remember where he himself with his team had planted the church in Corinth. Paul had pastored and taught the word of God with them second longest out of any of the places where he stood during his missionary church planning activity. He'd been there for 18 months teaching the word of God to them, providing leadership and pastoral care before he moved on to the next church plant. And even more than that, he had continued beyond that to interact with them through letters and correspondence, providing leadership and spiritual encouragement. And he's asking them, look, is it really necessary that I would have letters of recommendation to be able to speak to you or to come and interact and minister with you? Do you really need me through a letter of recommendation after all we've been through to prove my qualifications or to demonstrate my credibility? Again, that word epistles, when we see it in verse 1 there, simply just speaks of letters. And commendation speak of favorable commendation or approval the idea is someone giving a commendation on your behalf as someone who basically would validate your qualification words of endorsement we might say so paul's saying after all we've been through do, do i really need that is it really necessary that i would need a letter of recommendation now because there were those even in the early days of the church who were genuine frauds yes frauds in the work of the lord operating under the banner of the Bible in the name of Jesus, people who were frauds and tried to manipulate what they simply saw as a spiritual system of a good business opportunity, it became therefore necessary at times to have letters of commendation or recommendation because there were those who traveled around different churches doing work among people in church that were doing it just for their own personal gain or enrichment, or who were just spreading false messages that weren't healthy doctrines. So because of that, and because people in that day understand, as we talked about before, we're way more disconnected than we are today as far as correspondence, you couldn't just do something simple like do a little Google search to check someone's ratings or their background or see what kind of reviews they had in their ministry. You couldn't do those kind of things. So it became common practice. And this is why Paul's alluding to this for churches in that day to write letters of commendation, letters of recommendation, which often would be sent before maybe a minister would go to a particular area or or sometimes those letters would go with the person and they would present them when they would go to a new location just to basically endorse. They were a healthy, trustworthy source. They were sincerely doing the Lord's work. And to assure the church or those who were there, listen, you don't have to worry, be at ease, you can welcome this person in their ministry, they're they're validated, they're sincere, they have credentials to be doing what they're doing, and we want to recommend them to you. So this was a common thing. Now, the sad thing is, at Corinth, as I said, Paul had preached the gospel, planted the church ministered there among them he had continued to labor and love even beyond that season continuing to interact with them we saw the first letter he wrote we're now looking at the second letter that he wrote and Paul was kind of somewhat saddened and shocked that they as a group of people had allowed a few critics doing things to try and discredit Paul's character or discredit his work to be successful. So Paul says here, look, when we come to visit again, he says here, verse one, he says, do we really need, like others do, letters of recommendation to come back and to minister among you again? Is that really necessary? Or when I travel to other locations, should I make sure to get a letter of recommendation from you there at Corinth so that people will know that I'm approved of God? It's almost as if you can hear Paul saying, do I really need your approval now more than I need God's approval? Has somehow your approval as a person, as a, as a man, as an individual become more interesting and more necessary than the very approval of God? Or worse, Paul says, verse 1, he says, should we actually start commending ourselves? Is that what you want us to do? Do you want us to promote ourselves or use fleshly means to try and you know, demonstrate that we are solid and credible to praise ourselves, to or, or kind of obtain your approval? You could tell Paul, who knew very comfortably that he had God's approval in the very thing that he was doing, felt very uncomfortable and awkward, and did not like the idea of having to utilize fleshly means to promote himself or to promote God's work. You could tell it made Paul uneasy. It it bothered him as he was confident the Lord's hand was upon what he was doing. Paul's primary concern, you can tell from verse 1 and what he's declaring here in these verses, his primary concern was not the approval of people. It was having the approval of God in the things that he was doing in the way that he was serving. And look, even letters of recommendation, or can I say even letters after your name in whatever your title may be, those things in and of themselves still fall way short of having the approval of God, having the endorsement of God, having the endorsement of the Holy Spirit in his hand upon what you're doing and being enabled by God in the very thing that you're doing. You know, this morning, by way of application, I encourage you, ask yourself for your own life, whose approval genuinely matters most to you as a person? Whose approval matters most? In whatever it is you are doing, whose approval are you really most concerned about? Sometimes doing what God wants us to do and having God's approval means that you may not have the approval of other people. In fact, you may even earn the criticism of other people or the critique of other people and others may challenge what you're doing. And sometimes having approval and doing what God wants you to do may mean you won't have the approval of other human beings. Jesus said, in fact, beware when all men speak well of you. Oh, everybody speaks well of me. Jesus said, beware when that starts to happen. What we want is to know that God is approving what we're doing. Now, on the other side of that, let me say this. Other times, we can have the approval of people, yet God may not be approving what we're doing. So beware of that, Jesus said, because you can have the approval of God in that thing that you're doing or that path you're pursuing, and you may not necessarily have God's approval, though people may approve it. We want to have the approval of the Lord. You and I should want to have the acceptance of the Lord. The goal is to hear the voice of our Lord saying to us, well done thou good and faithful servant i'm pleased with what you're doing i approve of what you're doing i'm in approval of the path that you're on and i see it and i approve of it that's the thing that we're after the bible says we should be interested in finding out what's acceptable to the lord and look be be careful as well don't think that having human qualifications certifications, degrees, endorsements is what is most essential and important in serving the Lord in any capacity. That's not what's the most important thing. Oh, do you have a certification? Do you have some letters behind your name? Do you have this? Do you have that? Look, what matters most has the Lord called you to do what you're doing? Have you from heaven's perspective been selected and asked to do the thing that God wants you to do? And are you answering that assignment? And is his approval upon what you're doing? The question to always ask above everything else in whatever you're doing. Did God tell you to do that? Is God telling you to do that? Not do you think you should do it? Not does it seem like a good idea? Not are others encouraging you to do it? The question is, did God tell you to do it? Because if God told you to do it, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. You obey your master. You obey the Lord. You follow what he's leading you to do. And that is such a crucial and an important thing. And Paul understood, look, God's approval, God telling me to do this, and God's enablement is what matters most. And you know what Paul's going to begin to indicate here, we're going to see, is the greatest approval that God is directing what you're doing is the hand of God will be upon it. So if that's serving in some ministry capacity, as Paul's alluding to in these verses, we'll see the greatest evidence of genuine ministry is changed lives. And that's what Paul's gonna ultimately say. You're the evidence of my ministry. My letter of recommendation is all of your changed lives. It's the fact that as the result of what I've done, your lives have been helped and changed. And that's the indication that God's authorization is upon what I'm doing. Look what Paul goes on to say. He carries on with this letter of, Uh, the idea of this imagery of like a letter of recommendation to validate his work. He says, verse two, you, that is the people of Corinth, the Christians there, they're changed lives. You are our epistle, he says, our letter written on our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, he says, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God and not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is of the heart. So Paul says, look, you seem to want a letter of recommendation. He says, I actually have one. You're my letter of recommendation. Your very changed lives at the church at Corinth, he says, are like a wonderful letter from God. God was utilizing the transformed lives of the Christians at Corinth as Paul's very letter of recommendation, as strong evidence that he was working through Paul's ministry. Look, for those who want evidence or assurance, Paul says that what I'm doing is of the Lord. He says, it's very clear. He says, verse two, he says, you're our epistle. You're our letter of recommendation. He refers to their lives there. He says, clearly you're like, he says, you're just like a letter of Christ. The idea is, is your lives are a written record of the work of Christ that has happened among you. That is the people that had become converted and come to know Jesus Christ. The fact that they were now ongoing followers of Jesus, that they were worshiping the Lord and and assembling and serving the Lord together as a church family, the reality of how they had developed as Christians. Under the ministry of Paul the Apostle, Paul says this is like a letter that gives perfect record and testimony of the work of Christ that's happened among you. It's something that can be seen and, and evidence. It makes you show what Christ has done among you. And I love the two things that Paul indicates in this kind of analogy of them being like a letter of Christ. The first thing he talks about is how their lives were like a letter of Christ. And he says, you're like a letter of Christ, really, that's kind of been like in deeply engraved upon our hearts. Do you see what he says there? If you look with me, Paul says in verse uh, to, he says you're like a letter. I like you. He says this. He says a letter written in our hearts, written in our hearts. What Paul's communicating there, he says your lives have taken deep meaning within our hearts. It's like God's engraved you upon our hearts, our experiences together, your transformed lives. We've come to care about you deeply. Paul's saying, look, unlike others who may be fraudulent doing work of the Lord, he says, you're not like a bunch of meaningless customers to us. That's not what you are to me and to those ministering to you. He says, we're not detached from you because it's just business. Instead, he says, God's written you upon our hearts, your lives and your stories. And your experiences with Christ, he says, it's been weaved into the fabric of our heart. We love you and care about you, and we're personally attached to you in your life experience. It's like God's written your story upon our hearts. And I tell you, folks, that is genuine spiritual ministry. Genuine spiritual ministry is about life connection. That's what it's about. It's about connecting with lives, whether that is one-on-one ministry between you and another person, whether that is ministry in other way, ministry is not about just conducting business We're conducting religious business here. We're conducting good works or that's not what it's about. It's about connecting with people's lives where we care about people and their lives and their stories become etched into our hearts their experiences and what they've gone through, their struggles, their wonderful changes. It literally becomes a part of us and are stories of triumph. They become things that become engraved and written upon our hearts in such a way that you carry those stories around in your heart and they become like the very letters of recommendation that say to you, keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. Got another story in your heart now, don't you? Keep doing what you're doing. And those become the very personal things that influence us to keep doing with love the thing that the Lord's directing us to do. And I love, secondly, how Paul also, speaking of their lives like a letter of Christ, he also says their life is like a letter in another way. He says, verse 2, your life is like a letter that has now become, look at it, he says, known and read by all men. Like a letter that's been known and read by all men. You're like a Christian letter, and people were reading the message And it was being conveyed to them that lives can be changed by the power of Jesus Christ. And he says, you're like a letter, and people are reading your lives and they're seeing a very clear indication. Jesus loves people. Jesus can change people. Jesus can transform lives. And he says, look, God knows people will read our lives, right? And they come to conclusions. That's what people do. People read each other's lives. It happens naturally. Hey, what a wonderful thing. God knowing that he says, therefore I'm going to make Christians whose lives have been changed and touched and transformed. I'm going to make Christians in the last chapter. He said that we were like the fragrance of Christ, right? That we're diffusing a fragrance of christ's likeness. So people, they, they say, what is that? Oh, what are you cooking there? Well, I want to try that. And he says, we're like a fragrance. And now he changes the picture. he says, Your lives as Christians are also like letters of Christ being known and read by people around you in the world because they read lives. we've all probably heard that adage before. If you've been part of Christianity or the church at any time, you may be the only Bible that somebody ever reads, right? We understand the idea behind that. They may not pick up and read a copy of the word of God, but they'll read your life all right. They'll read and evaluate your life in the job and with your family and among your friends and in your school. They'll read your life and, and, and they'll try and determine, is this real or not real? And w- what is our life conveying to them? And the wonderful thing is that like a letter of Christ, we can reveal things to people and our story can be powerful. And the credibility of our Christian faithfulness to Jesus and telling people just what he's done in our life, people read that and they learn stuff. And, and they have stuff revealed to them about the Lord. And Jesus speaks to that as people read our lives, they come to good conclusions. And Paul says, this is what your lives are being used like. And he describes further how like a letter in verse 3, he says, like this letter of Christ, he says, you were not written or this letter was not written. First, he says, it was not written by ink. The idea is it wasn't about human ideas. It wasn't about uh, you know, worldly perspectives trying to persuade people to change, nor, Paul says, verse 3, was it in, in, in regards to the fact that it wasn't like the ministry on the tablets of stone. And what Paul's referring to here, and we'll see more of this as we go on in chapter 3, the idea is inferring to the Old Testament law. So Paul's saying, our ministry and your changed lives were not the result of like engraving on stones to read a bunch of regulations, a bunch of rigid rules. It wasn't due to coercing people to follow rigid requirements. You know, what an interesting analogy Paul uses here, because think about it, what are stones? Stones are cold, hard, rigid things, right, that weigh people down. And the Old Testament law, which Paul's kind of alluding to, left people weighed down and condemned with guilt, right, because they couldn't keep it. And it overwhelmed people and and, and caused them to feel a sense of constant guilt. Look, ministry to people, let me say this, ministry to people that patterns Old Testament law, that's legalistic and rigid and rule-oriented and so forth, I tell you what that will do, that will weigh people down and make people feel very burdened and make people feel constantly guilty and constantly worthless. And constantly like there's just no way change could ever possibly come in their life. It will result in those who minister in that way, people who may be doing in their mind the work of the Lord, but they're cold and they're hard hearted and they're rigid And they're not gracious in the way they interact with people, particularly in compassion and their failures. And they will simply put heavy burdens of guilt upon people. You're not dressing the right way. You're not following this rule. You're not doing that. And that's what spiritual people do. And it will be a bunch of heavy rules and regulation upon people. And I tell you, that kind of ministry, it rarely helps people. It exhausts people. It frustrates people. It makes people feel very miserable and guilty. But the last I checked when I read the gospel is Jesus didn't condemn people. Jesus sought to restore people. In fact, people were bothered that Jesus would interact with what? Tax collectors and prostitutes and people in the society who had really messed up their lives. And all of the religious establishment were so bothered. I can't believe he's interacting with those people. I can't believe he's doing that. Well, the reason he's doing that is because he's God and you're not. That's what God did. God interacted with the broken people. Jesus said a bruised reed, my father doesn't break, a smoking flax, you know, about to go out. He says, he doesn't just blow it out. and well, Let's just get rid of it. He says, no, we restore restored back into life. That's what we do. Jesus said, I came to seek and save those who were lost, those who need help. And so important, again, that we remember this. Paul indicates their ministry work, he says, it wasn't like the Old Testament mosaic law written on stones. Paul indicates our ministry work was happening, he's saying here, in a different way. In a different way than kind of being like, you know, chipping away with forcefulness of engraving something on stone tablets. Paul says, no, our spiritual work was ministered and accomplished by serving in Jesus's love, And in Jesus's power, in order, listen, to influence lives, not force people, but to influence lives toward life change in a completely different way. Paul says our ministry is taught to work by lovingly connecting with people. And then he says here, verse three, by graciously trying to inscribe God's truth onto their hearts. Connecting with them in love and then doing our best through that connection to win people inwardly, to win over their heart, to get God's will and God's word ultimately inscribed upon their heart so that they would actually desire a changed life and they would see the possibility of a changed life. And look, folks, that's exactly the way God desires to work change into people's lives, not by rigidly forcing from the outside, but getting them to embrace his will from a changed heart from within. In fact, even the Old Testament tells us that. In Jeremiah chapter 31, speaking of the new covenant in contrast to the old covenant, listen to what it says. God declared, Jeremiah 31, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers. And that day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, they couldn't keep it though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant, listen, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, their thinking, and write it on their hearts. Ezekiel in the Old Testament alludes to the same thing. In Ezekiel 11, God declares, then I will put a new spirit within them take away the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, a tender, sensitive heart that they may, why walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. Chapter 36 of Ezekiel. Again, God declares, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and keep my judgments. Notice God's way of ministry is to change the heart inwardly. God says, I'll take away your hard heart. Anybody ever struggle with a hard heart? Man, like my heart's like stone sometimes. God says, I'll take away your hard heart. And by the power and work of my spirit, I'll put a new spirit or disposition within you because as my spirit comes in you, God says, I'll make your heart like a tender, sensitive heart that's fleshly, that's alive, that has sensitivity. And God says, and I will write my will, my ways, my word, my truths on the fleshly tablet of your heart in such a way that God says here very clearly, and then you will walk in my statutes and keep my judgments. So what's God saying? God says, I'm going to put my truths and my ways in your heart so that nobody has to force you from the outside to follow God, but instead inwardly the truth of God's word, the truth of God's will would be in the desire of a person where they would begin inwardly instead of outward coercion, there would be inward conversion of their heart and they would want to walk in God's ways. They'll begin to want to follow God's will, want to walk in the ways of the Lord. And it doesn't have to be pressured from the outside. Life change comes from an inward prompting of God's spirit, right? Any of us who've been born again by the spirit, to some degree, you know that. I mean, I got... Saved, And the day afterwards, I just had some different uh, desires in my heart all of a sudden. And nobody told me anything. I was, when I came to the Lord, I had never been to church services. I, Genesis was a rock group, right? You just, I knew none of that stuff, nothing. I was a raw, but the day that I got converted, something was different inside of me. And it was the work of the spirit within my heart that was beginning to little by little write upon the fleshly tavern of my heart, the will of God. And look, that, that's what we want. That's where true change comes from. Not outwardly conforming to the pressures and rules and requirements to do what's right, but God inclining our heart by his spirit to do what's right. And how was that accomplished? Paul says it right there in verse three. It was accomplished, verse three, by the spirit of the living God. That's how it happens, by the Spirit of the living God. Through the Spirit's power, that's how miraculous work of life's change happens in people. Look, you know, people have talked to us before, maybe when we had our struggles. I speak to people, you speak to people who are having struggles. And you can learn all the right things to do. And someone can tell you, you need to stop doing this, you need to start doing that. You to, and, and you can have all the correct information. But until your heart comes under the inspiration of the power of the Holy Spirit within, you'll never change. A person will never change. But God wonderfully imparts his spirit. He says, look, if you will just yield to the power of my spirit within, I'll change your desires. I'll give you new ideas. I'll give you new interests. And all of a sudden, a person is, I have a desire to want to obey God. I have an an interest and my heart's inclined to not want to do something wrong anymore because the spirit of God brings change within us. We're going to see this in the end of the chapter. That's where true change comes from. True change doesn't come from self-resolve. It comes from submitting to the spirit's power, changing us within by the spirit of the Lord, writing God's will into our heart. Lord, I need you to change my heart. Lord, change this person's heart by the power of your spirit. That's where true change comes from. And that's how ministry is accomplished as God uses us, even as God used the apostle Paul. We let God operate through us in such a way where the Bible says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And as we just yield to the power of the Holy Spirit to work through our lives, it's not by our human skill that we help people to experience changed lives. It's not by striving with people that we get them to change their lives. It's by letting the Holy Spirit empower us that through the Spirit's influence, through influence, he begins to work inside of people as he works through us, as he did through Paul, to help hearts to be persuaded in the right direction. And Paul says, verse 4, we have such trust in these realities through Christ toward God. So Paul says we are relying on God confidently that he's using our lives in this way, that as we have relationship with Christ, as we stay connected to Jesus Christ and dependent upon him, we're relying on the hope that God will work through our lives, though we are like weak. I think Paul almost picks up this analogy. We're like weak, flawed pens, but he's the author. Writing things on the fleshly tablet of people's hearts. And I think Paul found such comfort in the reality that though we, as human instruments, you know, we oftentimes are like poor pens that aren't always working correctly, but the author still gets his message across. The author is still able to communicate to people and help the people because he is a mighty and a wonderful author. And it's not so much that we are called to do work for God, we are simply called as much as possible to let God work through us. So whether it's as a parent communicating and helping your children, whether it's, you know, lovingly sharing with another person in your job site, whether it's doing any work or ministry God helps us to do, God, I am, I'm trusting that as I just stay connected to Jesus, I'm trusting that through me, like just a flawed pen, somehow you will speak to this person and help this person and you'll be able to communicate to their heart what they really need. And Paul alludes to this in verse five and six, To that very thing. He says, verse five, look, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything, he says, as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Again, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So in verses five and six here, Paul gives a very balanced, if you would, description you might say of where genuine spiritual adequacy comes from as it pertains to doing the work of the lord as it pertains to walking in the will of the lord where does adequacy to do that come from where does the competency to do what god wants us to do come from where does that ability come well paul acknowledges in a balanced way first of all he says i humbly admit He says, I'm fully aware my insufficiency is a very real thing. He acknowledges his own inadequacy there in the beginning of verse five. Look what he says. Not that we are sufficient, adequate, competent of ourselves to think in some way as if anything is being from ourselves. Paul and his fellow laborers who served with him understood their own human limitations. They recognized their own weaknesses and inadequacies. Paul did not claim competency or effectiveness in ministry had anything to do with his great experience as an apostle. He admitted that we do not have adequacy within ourselves to be successful. Paul understood something very, very valuable. It was not their talent or their skills. It was not their smarts. Or their education. I mean, think about how perplexed they were. Remember when Jesus and twelve disciples started turning the world upside down in the early days of the church? They said, wait, "Wait, wait a minute. These are unschooled and ordinary men. I mean, they're fishermen and tax collectors with shady pasts. They're always fighting with each other. They could barely even get along half the time. They're unschooled and ordinary, but..." But it seems like they've spent time with Jesus because when they minister, it's like the fragrance of Jesus. And it's like Jesus is just communicating. And and it was something about their interaction with Jesus that made them effective. It had nothing to do. They weren't trained in the schools of the rabbis, as smart as the Pharisees and Sadducees by any means. Look, let me just say this morning, God can redeem those things. I don't want to belittle education or experience. I mean, none of those things, talent, skill, wonderful. Everything is a God-given gift. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. And if you're really smart, I don't want you to think, oh, I got to get really stupid to serve the Lord. That's not the case. Let those of us who are uneducated continue to be uneducated. You be the smart ones in the body of Christ. God can redeem all of those things and use them in wonderful ways. However, it's important to recognize talent and education and experience are not essential to be useful for God. They're not. There's no limitation because of your past or what it's been and, 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 and you know lack of skill in this area. That's not what's the, the issue, nor should we ever falsely rely on those things making us adequate because then we're going to fall prey to pride. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, look, again, keep in mind, Paul was a very educated man, extremely educated. He was an incredibly intelligent man in the ways of the Lord and the Old Testament law but he also had a shady past, but Paul said, look, we don't think anything's coming from our sufficiency. We know that for sure. We recognize Paul knew their personal resources contributed nothing to their adequacy to be effective for the Lord. And this is a very important thing. Paul says, I realize the truth. I bring nothing to the table. None of us bring anything to the table, but willingness and availability. Paul says, I know of anything. I'm a weak, and a lacking and an imperfect person. Paul said, writing to the Romans in chapter 7, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, that is my humanity. Paul said, nothing good dwells. So Paul says, my competency or adequacy, it's it's not of me. And look, for all of us this morning, it's important to be humbly aware of how utterly inadequate you are. Being used by God 101. I have nothing to bring to the table. (laughs) I have nothing to bring to the table, Lord. In light of what you are going to do, what is supernatural in the kingdom of God, Lord, uh, I bring nothing to the table. And I'll tell you, it is a sad and a dangerous thing whenever any person starts to think their sufficiency has something to do with them or that favor success in what they do for the Lord has anything to do with them or what they did or what they accomplished. The Bible teaches us to become very aware and accept that we are utterly inadequate. Now, in balance to that, look what Paul goes on to say. We know we're not adequate or competent. However, end of verse five, but our sufficiency, which we lack in ourselves, our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. So God, by an outpouring of his grace into our lives, makes us sufficient. God can make us adequate to be useful. God can make us capable to be a usable vessel to do his work and purposes. How? How? Through supernatural gifting that comes from His Holy Spirit. Through power from the Spirit of God that we can't bring to the table, He can supernaturally enable any person, despite their inability, despite their lack of experience, despite their age or anything about them, their weaknesses and inadequacies. And as a result, we can become adequate vessels for God. We can become competent servants for the Lord to do what he wants to do. It is also just as important to know not only that you're inadequate, to understand despite that inadequacy, God can and does make us sufficient to serve him. He makes us adequate to be able to do his work. Paul says very clearly there, it's a biblical fact, our sufficiency to do God's work is from God. Who, look at verse six, he has made us sufficient. Oh, I'm so insufficient. I'm so, right, that that was was verse five. Read on, brother. God's made you sufficient. God has made you sufficient, he says, to be able to be an effective minister. Now, why is this important? Because there should be no excuse-making in the kingdom of God as Christians that we're just not able to serve the Lord. Oh, I'm just too weak. I'm just a brand-new Christian. I don't know enough Bible verses. I, I, I just, I'm so inadequate. I'm, you know, I'm, I just, I don't, I don't know what I would do. And, and look, God has enabled you supernaturally. Look at the people God used through the word of God. Look at the people God uses through human history. God uses inadequate people so that he gets all the glory. And the Bible says God gives power to the weak, not to the strong. And God can make us adequate and sufficient. And the key is knowing that, believing that in faith, listen, and then stepping forward in faith, in obedience, saying, Lord, I bring nothing to the table, but I believe you can equip me and make me adequate if I make myself available. So, Lord, here's my availability. And truthfully, folks, that's all we bring to the table. It's not about ability. It's about availability. And that lines up with what Jesus said, because I believe Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, Or few. Jesus' complaint wasn't the skill of the work staff. Jesus said the problem is, like in America today, nobody wants to work. If I could just get a few people, I'll enter into the harvest field, I'll do something. Jesus, that's all I'm really looking for. (laughs) I'm going to get all the glory and do all the power in the work. If you could just give me a body, that'd be great. Right? And how wonderful to have that reality. I don't have to be adequate but I can't make excuse, oh, I'm just so inadequate and woe is me and and I got too much and I'm just too overwhelmed and I just, don't do that. Here I am, Lord. Use me, send me, however you can, Lord. I'm willing to make myself available and I trust that your power will show up. And many times Paul realized his greatest power was in the weakest moments in his life. So are you really weak? Now God's going to use you really powerfully. Because in your weakness, God can show his power tremendously. And knows what he makes us sufficient to do. Paul says he makes us sufficient, verse uh, 6 there, makes us sufficient to be ministers, look what he says, of the new covenant. That's what kind of sufficiency God wants to give to us. That word ministers just means servants. That's what God, ministers, I'm not a minister. No, the word minister in the Bible just literally means, in its simplest form, servants. He makes us ministers or servants of the new covenant, God's promise of grace that through Christ's life and work by the Spirit's power, change can come. That's the new covenant. And what Paul begins to do here is describe kind of this contrast between the old covenant under the Mosaic law and the new covenant under Christ and grace and the spirit's power. And he's going to talk about this. We'll see more as we go through the remainder of the chapter, this contrast between the old covenant, which brought death and condemnation, the written letter of the law and the new covenant, which was about grace for failures and the power of the Holy spirit to do what we cannot do. And what Paul was ultimately getting to here saying, look, God's made us sufficient to be servants or ministers of his new covenant ministry. Paul's reminding us here that every one of us as Christians have been made adequate to serve the Lord in some way. Every one of us. You don't have to be Paul the Apostle or Apostle Peter or anyone else or Billy Graham. He says we're all adequate, sufficient ministers, all of us, of new covenant ministry. If you've experienced the new covenant of salvation, you are sufficient to be used in that way, and your life, hear me, can be useful for the Lord. In different ways, in all different capacities, we can let our lives be useful. And remember, when we do the work of the Lord and we do try and help people, it's New Covenant ministry. What's New Covenant ministry? Exposing people to Jesus because he's who changes lives. New Covenant ministry is extending grace. Not beating people up with legalistic rules or laying the heavy burden of a law upon them. New Covenant Ministry is exercising the life-giving power of the Spirit and the love of God and the power of God to assure people there's hope for a changed life. Look, any work of the Lord by His Spirit should be characterized, our text is telling us, by renewed lives. Changed lives from the inside out. The result of what we are doing should not ever end in destroying people's spirits. Instead, he says, the letter may do that and kill and destroy people's spirits. But he says, the work of the spirit under new covenant will infuse life into people. It will give hope to people. It will let people know that change is possible if they just Get connected to God. Let's stand together and let's.